0: It's good to be here, good to be able to uh, open God's Word together this morning. Um, And it's been my prayer all week that when I stand up here that you guys don't hear me. Um, It's been my prayer that God, through His Spirit, will teach you what His Word says. Uh, Because if you're here to hear a good speaker, well, one, you come on the wrong Sunday. Um, That's next week, not this week. But if you're here even to hear a good speaker next week, you're here for the wrong reason. Um, you're not here to hear what man has to say. You're here to hear what God has to say. Um, and so I'll, that's my desire this morning is we we just look at God's word together um, and we pray to God that we can understand it, um, that he shows us clarity of what his word says and what it means. Um, and so this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, last week, Kevin Um, started in Matthew 5. He started the Sermon on the Mount and did a a phenomenal job with it. And he looked at um, all the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are you because of this. Um, And so I'm going to kind of pick up where Kevin left off last week. So we're going to be in Matthew 5. And I'm going to start in verse 13. And we're going to hopefully try to go through about verse 26. Um, And kind of the challenging thing for me with this whole message uh, leading up to today has been just kind of the different if you look in your bible there's there's always a heading um, and so we're going to hit like three different headings and so it's almost like three different um thoughts but all these thoughts they do come together they are all um part of of jesus's sermon um and so i hope i can kind of to to mesh all these together for you so that uh maybe this does kind of make sense and it doesn't sound like three mini sermons on three different things you know um But before we kind of get into our text, uh, just to kind of remind us of where we are in Scripture, um, I want to go back to uh, who is Jesus talking to? Where is he at and who is he talking to? Uh, Because I think that kind of helps us understand his sermon a little better. And so uh, if we go back um, actually to the uh, end of chapter 4, we can start in verse 23. And it says, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick and afflicted, or and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond Jordan. And then in chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And so just a couple of things I want us to kind of notice here. One, um, Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. And it's really, people's heard about it. And, and as we saw in chapter 4, um, people were coming from everywhere to see These miracles. And so there were these huge crowds of people coming. Um, What kind of people were they? You know, were these the Pharisees? Were these the scholars of the day? Or were these common people? Um, You know, these were all common people. These were people who uh, their knowledge of Scripture was based on what they were taught from the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, they didn't have a Bible sitting at home that they were reading all the time. And so they didn't have a great knowledge. All they knew was what they were being taught. So they're very common people, um, probably not well-educated people. They were working people. Uh, and this is who Jesus is healing. And this is all the, the, the miracles that he's performing. Um, and so it's interesting to me that it starts off and it says that the crowds came. And he had this large crowd. And then he went up on a mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Um, This seems to to divide the people Uh, because it didn't say the huge crowds went up on the mountain to hear him. It says his disciples. And so it's kind of pointing to the people who were kind of following his teaching. And it doesn't necessarily mean the 12. Uh, There's probably a lot more that were there, but it doesn't sound like it was everyone. And so it kind of brings my mind to today. And um, man, there's so many things that we can do To bring people in for entertainment value that when it comes time to teach the word they tune out and you guys have seen it you've probably seen it actually in a church Um, but there's also you know think of a a Christian concert where people go to hear uh, this music and then if they have a speaker man it's time to go to the concession stand in the bathroom Um, they're there for the entertainment and they're not there for the teaching um, and you guys see that in a lot of events. The event draws the people, but when it comes time for teaching, that's for somebody else. And they tune out, and it's kind of the same thing here. Jesus drew crowds, but they were there to see miracles. They were there to see people healed. And when he went up on this mountain and he sat down, that's the position that a teacher of that time would take. They taught sitting down. And so he went up on the mountain and he sat down, and it's like, oh, it's time for the, it's time for the sermon. Um, I'm out. Like, you guys go ahead. And so that's why the Bible says his disciples came to him. They were the ones that wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, They weren't necessarily there for the miracles and the entertainment. Um, And so I hope that kind of pricks our heart a little bit as to why are we here? You know, why do we gather? Um, Why do we do what we do? You know, is it to be entertained? Or is it to hear the word of God taught? And, you know, if we claim to be a disciple of Christ, we should have a hunger for his word. And so that's why we gather. Man, um, I mean, if you gather for entertainment, you can find better places for entertainment. Of course, sometimes we're kind of entertaining just how we flub stuff up. That's kind of fun. Um, probably not the entertainment you're looking for, but, you know, be fun on YouTube or something. Um, but we come, here to, we come here to hear from God's word. We come here for the teaching. Um, and again, man, that's why it's my prayer that God will speak to you during this time. That you're not here to hear from me, but you're here to hear what God has to say about his word. Um, talking about these people, it, it kind of took my mind to uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 where um, Peter and John were arrested and they were standing before um, the Pharisees. And it says... Uh, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They recognized they had been with Jesus. You know, if, if the Bible says that about Peter and John, we, again, we can kind of assume that was probably most of the crowd. Um, Peter and John were uneducated common men. They were fishermen. Um, and so that's, that's kind of who Jesus is talking to here. Even, even the, the disciples that come up to hear him, which include Peter and John, they're disciples, um, they're uneducated common men. And so that is who has come to hear Jesus. And so when, I, I think when we look at what Jesus is teaching and we look at his Sermon on the Mount, um, sometimes it's important to remember that because what we like to do is we like to make this a deep theological discussion and we like to really tear it down and, and, and find all the deep hidden meaning in everything, which is okay, but was that what Jesus was doing? You know, was he delivering a message to people to give them a deep theological understanding of whatever he was talking about? Or was he talking to common people, using common language, and trying to make common um, examples for these people to understand? And so I, I really feel like when we look at this sermon, we need to remember... He's talking to common people. And when I look around this room, I mean, most of us are just common people. We're just common working people who don't have a great degree of education. You know, we've not been to seminaries and we don't, we haven't been taught, you know, scripture through education. We've been taught through each other and through God revealing himself to us um, is the way most of us come. And so we kind of fall on the same basic. You know, we're, we're just common people here to hear the word of God taught. Um, and so we'll start uh, verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so a couple of interesting things about what Jesus says here first um, and Kevin kind of brought this up last week when he was going through the Beatitudes and talking about uh, how these people are blessed. You know, blessed are you um, who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are persecuted, all these things. Um, these people, if you remember, they're, they're hearing something that they've never heard before. When they go and they sit and hear the word of God taught through the Pharisees, Um, Man, the Pharisees, they're the educated people. They're the ones with all the knowledge. They're the righteous of the day. And if anybody's going to be blessed, it's them. You know, were they telling the the poor common people, man, you're blessed? God has blessed you. Blessed are you. Um, God hadn't spoken through a prophet in 400 years. I mean, these people feel like God has abandoned them. You know, where has God been? And, And Jesus comes on the scene and says, You're blessed. And now he says, you are the salt of the earth. It's like, what in the world? Like, they've never heard this before. They've never heard that, that man, God has not forgotten you, that he has a purpose for you, that you are, um, you are this great thing. And so Jesus, he tells them, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And so what was he kind of saying there? And again, this is kind of where we could really, uh, we could really run off on a deep tangent. And we could talk about salt for a while. And we could talk about the chemical composition of salt and what salt was used for and where it come from and all this stuff, which may be fine and great, but was that Jesus' point? Like when he said, you're the salt of the earth, people are thinking, hmm, so what exactly is he saying? You know, um, or did they continue to listen? And, and I think it's great, this example that he's used. Um, yes, they're the salt of the earth. Yes, maybe, maybe the point is, you know, God is using you for something great. Um, But as being disciples of Christ, they are useful. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at, is is you are useful. Salt is useful and you're useful. It's kind of that correlation. Um, But he says that if salt is lost to saltiness, how is it going to be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so what would you take from that? I mean, if you heard Jesus say that to you, what would be your take on that? And my take would be, if he's staying on the salt of the earth and I don't have flavor, if, I, if salt doesn't taste like anything, it's useless. And so if I'm the salt of the earth and I don't provide anything, then pretty much I'm useless. I mean, how can you be a disciple of Christ if you don't follow Christ? How can you be a disciple if you don't have flavor, if you don't taste, if you don't do? Um, a disciple is useful, but it's only as useful as what we do. You know, if you say, I follow Christ, and then you go spend the rest of your life on top of a mountain and never talk to anybody, well, how useful is that? You know, we have to share the gospel with people. We have to love people. We have to encourage one another. We have to gather together as a church. We have to worship. We, have to, we do all these things because we're disciples. And, and we're useful in God's hands. Um, But to think about how salt, if it doesn't taste like anything, I mean, really, what good is it? You know, I like salt. I like to salt food because it makes food taste great. But, you know, if I put salt on something and I didn't taste the salt, why waste my time? You know, this stuff is no good. Let's just get rid of it. It probably wouldn't even kill a slug. I don't know. Would it kill a slug if it didn't taste like salt? (laughs) Who knows? But it has to be useful. And as disciples, we have to be useful. And then he goes on in verses 14 through 16, and he says, Not only are you the salt of the earth, but you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor to people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And here, Jesus has kind of taken an example again, and he's kind of expanded on it a little bit. He could have stopped and said, um, you're the light of the world. That would have been great. But here, he kind of gives us an explanation, and I think it really kind of ties back um, to help us kind of understand the salt of the earth thing, too, is that you let your light shine so that others uh, will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's kind of the purpose. Um, And so just talking a little bit about light, um, again, we can look at this, like, what is he talking about? You're the light of the world. A city on top of a hill uh, can't be hidden. You don't light a light and put it under a basket. It all kind of points to the same thing, that what you do is going to be visible. If you're a disciple of Christ, what you do will be visible to everybody. Um, God is not going to make you a disciple of Christ and hide you away somewhere. That would be ridiculous. You're a disciple of Christ because you have a purpose while you're here on this earth. And just like Lot has a purpose, you have a purpose. Um, And so what is the purpose that he's saying? The purpose is so that people can see your good works and glorify God. That the works we do point people to God. And man, sometimes that's convicting because the works I do, I don't know if it points people to God or not, but it should. Um, and that's what Christ is saying about the light. And we know, you know, Eric's been going through First John, and there's been a lot of talk about light, being in the light and not being in the darkness. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of correlation there, and it's kind of the same thing here. Um, so what does the light do? It shines your good works, and it glorifies God. Um, we can think of it this way. If we go to John chapter 3, Verses 19 through 21. And you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. And this kind of helps us understand a little more what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And I think that's a, that, that's a good verse that kind of helps us understand what he's saying here. This, this relationship between light and darkness where everything represented in the Bible about light points to the good works that point to God. And things done in the darkness, I and mean, that's our sinfulness. That's the things we don't want exposed. And if you guys think about it, you know, how much sin is done under the cover of darkness? You know, if you go to, you know, a club or something, I've seen them on TV, um, but if you go to a club or something, like, it's not like brightly lit room that you go to, it's It's dark. Why is that? It's because everything you do is kind of hidden. It's not out there for everybody to see. You know, oftentimes when we sin, um, it's so nobody sees it. Like, we don't want to come out in front of everybody and expose our sin. Hey, come and look what I'm doing. This is sinful. Um, We want it to be hidden. We want it to be away from people's view. And that's why the Bible says that... um, They didn't come to to light because it would expose their works. They were evil. When we sin, we want it to be dark. And Christ says, you need to be the light. You need to expose this stuff. You need to expose sin. You need to expose the works of God. You know, the works of God, they're not done in darkness. They're done out for everybody to see. Um, And so there's the difference between um, light and darkness. And, And Christ says, you are the light of the world. So therefore, let everybody see your work. Let people see what you do and glorify God. Let people see how you act. Let people see how you treat other people. You know, whatever it may be, um, but it has to point to God because if we're not careful, we do good works to kind of point people to us. And if God's not glorified through our works, then we are. That if we're glorified through our works, they're not good. And so we have to be careful that we don't let pride get in the way. That when you do a good deed, it's not, hey, look what I've done. You know, hey, my neighbor, my neighbor needs help. I want everybody to know that when I went to my neighbor's yard and I mowed it for them and they didn't even ask me because they're elderly and they couldn't do it. And so, like, I want to broadcast that, you know. Well, who's that pointing to? Is that glorifying you or is that glorifying God? You know, we have to be careful. Um, Yes, we're the light of the world. Yes, we're to let people see our good works. But they have to see them in a way that we honor God with what we do. And we don't boast in ourselves of what we're doing. Because that's the entire wrong attitude. And hopefully as we kind of go through this, um, you guys will start picking up on a common theme of how everything Christ is talking about all points back to our heart. Where's your heart at in this? You're a disciple of Christ. Where's your heart at? You're doing good works for everybody to see. Where's your heart at? You know, are you doing these things to honor God? Are you doing them to honor yourself? And then he moves on in verse 17. And he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Um, again, it, it kind of feels like he's changed gears a little bit because he was talking about you. You know, your salt, your light, go do your works. And then he kind of turns it back on him and he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Um, it seems to be kind of a, tr- uh, a strange transition. Um, but again, I think all of this is tying together. And so we just need to kind of work through it and see what Jesus is teaching. Um, here he's saying that he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so what exactly is he saying there? Um, if you think again back to the day that the people lived in, how did they gain their righteousness? You know, they tried to gain righteousness through fulfilling the law. And that's what the Pharisees were really good at, at handing people with, is the law. You've got to be obedient and it wasn't just the law of God. It turned into the law of God and the law of man um, because they like to add a lot of stuff to it. And so it really became just this whole system of works, things that you can do, things you cannot do, and it's all so that you can be righteous before God and so that you could understand um, and have a relationship with him and all this stuff. And Jesus says, I didn't really come to do away with that, but I come to fulfill it like I'm going to fulfill this law by doing it perfectly. And I think when we start looking at what he's saying, we start understanding our sinfulness. That Christ is coming and he's saying, okay, all this stuff that, that you've been taught to do, and, and I'm going to start teaching you something in a minute, but don't think I'm doing away with all this. Like, all oh, this is still valid, but I'm going to show you a deeper understanding of the law and what God was talking about, and what the requirements of the law is. And so, he kinda, his, that's kind of what he's telling them. And he, he talks about how um, until ev- heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And just the, the iota and the dot is just the iota is, uh, I think, the smallest letter. Um, is it Hebrew, David? The The iota? iota? I don't know. That's okay. It's it's a, it's the smallest letter um, in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, and um, and a dot is usually just like a little accent mark. And so he's, he, basically what he's saying is when you look at the law, every little mark made on a piece of paper about this law, like all oh, that's going to be fulfilled. Um, so no, it's not just the big parts of the law that's going to be fulfilled. It's not just the main points of the law that's going to be fulfilled. It's every little thing of the law. It's going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be fulfilled through Christ. And, again, when we kind of go back and we look at that, at our ourselves, I mean, oftentimes we look at the big things. You know, what are the big sins I need to get rid of, and we don't focus on the little things. Um, and Jesus is saying, man, it's all going to be accomplished. And it's all going to be accomplished through him. And so, again, if we go back and we think about the people he's talking to, um, man, they didn't have a whole lot of hope as far as being able to accomplish the entire law. And they knew that. They, they weren't the educated, elite, righteous people. Um, they knew they had no hope in fulfilling this entire law. And Jesus comes and he says, he's not come to do away with this stuff, but he's going to fulfill it. And then he says, um, that if you relax one of the least of these commandments and then teach others to do the same, that you're going to be least of the kingdom of heaven. But if you teach, if you do the things of the law and you teach them, you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he makes a comment that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, man, what in the world is he talking about here? You know, he's talking about keeping the entire law and not not looking at part of it as insignificant and part of it as great. But he's talking about keeping the whole thing um, and how we can't relax any of that. You know, when he's talking to the people, you can't relax any small part of the law and and focus on the great part of the law. And, you know, I was kind of thinking about kind of how we do that ourselves with man's law. Um, You know, there's laws that we keep that we say, man, this is the law, and it's a good law. Such as, you can't murder somebody. Like, we would all agree, that's pretty good. Um, But the law that says the speed limit going down a Way is 35 miles an hour, well, I'm in a bigger hurry than that. And I don't like it being 35 miles an hour, so I'm gonna go 45 miles an hour. We do that with man's law, and we justify it in our mind. Hey, this law is fine, but this law, I don't know, it's kind of stupid. I don't agree with it, um, so I'm not going to do it. But do we turn around and do that with God's law? Or do we look at what God has commanded us, and we say, I love all of God's commandments? Or are there some of God's commandments that we're just like, I don't really, I don't know about that one. Like, Like, let's see how close I can get to breaking this one without actually breaking it. Um, that's usually kind of the way we look at it, is I really don't kind of like that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to skirt around it if I can. Um, and we kind of see this uh, back through the, in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, we'll look at a couple of verses there. And then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to just go ahead and mark your place. So Romans chapter 1 in verse 28 says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And then he goes through a whole list of these terrible acts that people are doing. And then in verse 32, he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get give approval to those who practice them. And then if you'll go to 1 Corinthians 13, and starting in verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And I think if you look at these verses and you put these two together, that one, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And in, in, in Romans 1, he's talking about people that are not only doing wrong, but they approve people that are. And so where is love there? Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. But it's easy for us sometimes to sit back and say, well... You know, I might not agree with homosexuality, but hey, if that's your thing, it's your thing. And and maybe if we don't do it, we may approve of it. And where is love? Love doesn't approve at wrongdoing. I mean, Scripture tells us that. And we want to say, well, love says I shouldn't judge other people and I shouldn't tell other people what they can and can't do. But no, that's not love. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And so for us to take the commands of God and to relax any of those, that's not love. Because love wants to uphold all of God's commands. Love wants to honor God in what we do. Love doesn't want to find a way around God's commands or to say, well, this one you really need to keep, but this one, it's kind of okay if you let that go. Um... And you guys can fill in the blank. There's probably things in your mind right now that you're thinking of that maybe you've relaxed or maybe you know people that's relaxed. That, man, I know this is wrong, but fill in the blank. Um, We've all seen it and we've probably all done it at one point of our life. We have to honor God with all of our heart. And again, that's kind of going back to what he's saying. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We do put our good works out for other people to see and those things should point to God. And if they're not done to love, they're not going to point to God. If we agree with the world, we're not pointing people to God. And this is kind of where he's getting. Um, And we see that he tells the people that your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And again, when you talk about an impossible task. I mean, remember who he's talking to. These are common people. They're uneducated. They're just hardworking people who anything they know about what God has to say, they've learned from a Pharisee. And if anybody's righteous in their eyes, man, it's the Pharisees. I mean, these are the righteous dudes and we're we're just a bunch of sinners. And Jesus says, I have to be more righteous than this guy. And if I'm not, I'm not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like, how in the world is this even possible? And you have to see what these people are going through. Here Jesus was building them up and giving them all this great hope. And then it turns around and it's like, but if you're not more righteous than them, you're not going to heaven. And that just had to be a letdown. Like, why would he say that? But I think if we go back and, and even, man, if, wish we had time we could just finish up the whole sermon. You know, what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture that in your own flesh, in your own abilities, you will never be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. These Pharisees that you see, that you think are so righteous and upholding the law, if you're not more righteous than that, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. So what does it say about them? It's not about our work, and our ability done through our own effort. Because everything that we do points to us. But it goes back to our heart. And the work that God has done in our life that points people to him. And that's kind of where Jesus is going with this. So I want to get into anger Um, And if you look in your Bible, again, there's a lot of headings. And a lot of these are all kind of pointing to the same thing. Um, Because he starts out by saying, you've heard it said to those of old, or you've heard it said. um, And so a lot of these will start that same way. And so what Jesus is doing is he's reminding people, this is what you've been taught. This is what you've heard. And so what I want to do is not do away with this, remember Jesus is not here to abolish the law, but he's to fulfill the law. And so so when he says, you've heard it said, he's bringing up this law that you've heard taught, that you've heard it taught maybe not incorrectly, but incomplete. And so he says, "Um, you've heard it said that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, which we all say, yeah, that's right. I mean, even our laws say that if a man murders, he's liable to judgment. Um, if you take somebody's life, you're going before the judge. And if you're convicted, you're doing a lot of time. I mean, that's just common sense. Like, even the world agrees with that. You can't murder people. And so, again, Jesus' crowd, you know, what have they been taught? You can't murder people. If. You know, an eye for an eye. You murder somebody, then you die. Okay, they all get that. But Jesus, he's going to go a little bit deeper than that because that's the way God's commands are. Um, It's not about just following this law. And if you do this exact thing, you're good. Um, But he's going to go and he's going to point to the heart of the matter. Verse 22, it says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says, but I say to you. And so what he's doing is he's giving them understanding of this is what God meant. When God said not to murder, here's what he was pointing to. Here's what he was really telling you. Um, that it's not just murder, but God's looking at your heart. And it's interesting because If you go back and you look, he says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But what does he say about everybody who's angry? He'll be liable to judgment. And so he's kind of taken anger and he's elevated it to murder. If you murder or if you're angry with somebody, you're liable for judgment. Same thing. And he's really kind of pointing to the heart of people. And something that's kind of interesting, if you go through all of this, all of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very end of it, in Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29, it says that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And I think we see that here. That Jesus is, when he's teaching, he's teaching as a person of authority. That when I teach about the law, this is, that he has authority over the law. That, that he's come to fulfill this law And he's telling them that, yes, the law says not to murder, but I'm telling you what the meaning of the law is. If you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. In God's eyes, that's the same thing. And again, it points back to our view of sin, that we don't see anger and murder as the same thing. We see murder as terrible, you know, Life imprisonment or execution, you take your choice, but it's bad. Like, you don't do that. But for me to get angry with somebody, like, that's not the same thing. Like, I can just, like, apologize and we'll get over it. But in God's eyes, that's sin. And all sin is worthy of death. And anger is no different in God's eyes than murder. You get angry with somebody, you're liable for judgment. Just as if you killed somebody. And man, how many people were listening to this that probably hadn't killed anybody, but I guarantee they've all been angry at somebody. If they hadn't, I don't know what's wrong with them. Because I've been angry at plenty of people. Um, And so that had to really hit the heart of people. That, oh my gosh, now this guy's calling me a murderer. How am I ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven if I'm a murderer? Because we know that's going against God's law. But what, we're, what Christ is teaching and what they're learning through this is that the law was never meant to be a way for us to earn God's favor. Or it's not there to tell us, okay, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Do these things and you're going to be good to go. Um, but it's, it's to show us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our heart. That's what it's there for. Why did Christ say that he would fulfill the law? Why didn't he tell us to fulfill the law? Because we can't. We're sinful. But guess what? He's sinless. He can fulfill the law. And only he could fulfill the law because he's the only one sinless. That's why he didn't tell us to fulfill the law, but that he was going to do it. Um, And again, that shows us the holiness of God. That he's the only one that can perfectly fulfill this law. That he's the one that gave it But man, it points to a heart. And we should look at that and see a great separation between us and God. God is holy. God is perfectly righteous, loving, good Father. I am just a sinful person. I cannot compare myself or ever get on the same level as God. How could I ever be entered into the presence of God when I'm so much worse than He is? And that's exactly what Christ is pointing them to. You can't do it. But he can. And man, just to think about that Christ can do that and then in turn give us that righteousness because he died on a cross. Man, that's amazing. That Christ makes us righteous before God. Christ makes us perfect before God. Something we can never do, but that he can do for us. So Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Exactly what the law is there for and exactly what it's not there for. You're not going to become justified in the sight of God. It's going to point to your sinfulness. That's what the law is for. But then also if we, if we go to Matthew 22, talking about the law And again, how this all goes back to our heart. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And anytime somebody says something about the law and the prophets, they're talking about all of the Old Testament scripture. All the scripture you have that has been given to you by God, everything depends on loving God and loving people. If you want to perfectly obey the law, perfectly love God, perfectly obey people, you're not going to break any of them problem is we can't. We can't love perfectly. So we're going to break the laws of God. But here Christ is, he, he's given us that understanding of this is what the law points to. It all goes back to your heart. God wouldn't have to give you all these commands to how to treat people if you would only love right. If you would only love perfectly. Because if I love perfectly, I'm not going to offend God and I'm not going to offend you. But the problem is, we can't love perfectly. And so that kind of really puts us in this situation where what are we supposed to do? And that's where Christ is saying, I'm the one that's come to fulfill this. And we know that by going to a cross and raising out of the grave, that his righteousness becomes ours, that we become justified in God's sight because of what Christ is doing. But, you know, for these people, it's a completely different thought. Because again, they've been taught this whole time that you have to obey the law. And you try to obey the law perfectly. And Jesus is teaching something a little different. That yes, the law has to be obeyed. But it's all going back to your heart and your heart is wicked. And that's the whole point of the law. And so then he continues. He says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So this is always kind of interesting to me because, I don't know, I've always kind of seen it a little backwards. Um, Like, to me, it almost feels like these are getting less and less. Like, if you're angry with your brother, like, that's terrible. But then, like, you insult your brother, well, that's kind of bad, and then, you know, you say you fool like that don't sound that harmful you know Um, but it's like it's like the penalty keeps escalating every time and you know it's not until we really kind of start understanding what Jesus is saying here that it really does kind of make sense Um, because again when he talked about anger he's comparing it to murder and he's going back and he's pointing to your heart but the thing about anger is um, sometimes it can be expressed externally but sometimes we can kind of keep it in. It's like if somebody makes you mad, I mean, I don't like to argue with people. I don't like confrontation. And so if, if I'm mad, I'll probably just be quiet and go about my way and just be mad. I'm just going to be mad at you, but I might not lash out at you. That's kind of the way anger works. You may be the opposite. You may just fly off and just tear into somebody when you're mad. Everybody kind of treats it different. Um, but no matter how you express anger toward another person, in God's eyes, it's murder. It's the same thing. It's sin. Whether you lash it out or whether you just keep it in, it's still sinful. But then when he talks about insulting your brother, well, there you've kind of got a little more external with it because now you've cast an insult at someone. And so now you're kind of attacking that person. Um, But then to say you fool, to us, that doesn't sound like, okay, big deal. You know, that's like, us. I mean, you call somebody an idiot or a moron. It's kind of the same thing. Um, But when you do that, you're attacking the character of a person. And so you're getting extremely personal. And actually the the term there, you fool, it actually goes back to calling somebody you're, you're mindless and basically telling them, You don't really have a purpose. Like, you're an idiot and you can't do anything. It's kind of what that's saying. And that's pretty harsh. And so you kind of see how when Jesus is talking about this, it is kind of escalating some to where it goes from something that I'm feeling to something that I'm doing to I'm really tearing a person down. I have really attacked the character of a person. And Jesus... um, Again, he's going back and he's pointing to our heart and saying that is the same as killing somebody in the eyes of God. Like you don't lash out at people, you don't get angry, and you don't tear them down. You don't tear down somebody's character. Um, if you do that sin in the eyes of God, Matthew 15, verses 10 through 20 Jesus kind of talks about this a little bit, um, about how our heart defiles us. And it's not so much the act as it is the heart of people. Um, starting in verse 10, Matthew 15, it says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He said a lot of stuff had offended them. But the disciples wanted him to know. And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father is planting will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall in a pit. And Peter said, Explain this parable to us. So what are you talking about, Jesus? This is weird. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes the stomach and is expelled? But whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anyone. And so you can kind of see how Christ has taken all this and pointed it back to the heart. And here he's just talking about, you know, eating laws and ceremonial stuff. And it's like stuff we really don't care that much about. You know, it's an external thing to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. We've all done it. We've all eaten and not washed our hands. That doesn't make us unclean. What comes out of our heart makes us unclean. And that's what Christ is pointing to. And it's interesting because... He's talking about things proceeding from the mouth, but he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Man, so it's all going back to who you are, what you're made of. Those evil thoughts, they find a way out. You know, murder. Does murder come from the mouth? You know, murder comes from the heart. All this is going back and it's pointing to our heart. And where's our heart? Who owns our heart? What do we do? Um, it's all going back and it's pointing to the inside. And he says that um, that you're liable to the hell of fire, which, shameless plug, Wednesday night we're going to talk a little bit about hell. So come on Wednesday night. It'll be interesting. Um, but here, um, this phrase, the hell of fire, uh, the word hell here is actually the Greek word Guiana. Uh, gehenna. gehenna. David can say that better than I can. Um, But it refers to a valley that's south of Jerusalem, and it was where um, all of their trash was taken, and there was a continual fire, always burning in this big heap of garbage. Um, But it also kind of goes back before that to a valley of sacrifice to pagan gods. And so kids were killed and thrown in this valley, and now Jerusalem's using it as a landfill, and they set it on fire. And so it's a continual burning of fire, trash, whatever it is. Um, yeah, dead people, dead animals, whatever, whatever you got to get rid of, chuck it in that thing, it'll burn. Um, and that's what Jesus is saying when he's referring um, to hell. So this is where people's minds are going. That when I call somebody a fool, this is what I deserve. I deserve to be thrown into this fire-burning valley and consumed. Just because I called somebody an idiot, but man, it goes back to our heart and God's righteousness, and those things do not—they don't—they don't match. Um, God is holy and we are not, and our heart is defiled. And then he kind of finishes it up by saying that if you're offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Um, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come off your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid every last penny. And so it's just kind of a reference to um, if there's something you can do to not stand before the judge, you really should do that thing. Because if you go before the judge, you're not paying your debt. You're getting thrown in prison, and you're there forever. Then um, I mean, what's that thing we can do? What can we do to not stand before the judge and answer for our sins? And we all know the answer. When I mean, you put your faith in Christ. You put your faith in what he's done. He'll stand before the judge and answer for your sins. And I don't have to. But man, it's a change of heart that God has changed our heart and we have faith in Christ and, and, and that's where our hope is found and our hope is not found in the works that we do. You know, our hope is not found in us being righteous, but us having the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives. Man, that's where our hope is. And so what I really kind of want to leave you guys with, um, if you notice the title, uh, Obedience Due to Your Desire. Why do you do what you do? Why are you in this room today? Did you come to church because you're supposed to? Or did you come to church because you wanted to? Because you have a heart of being with God's people and bringing your worship to the Lord together as a congregation today and to hear from his word. Like, is that your desire or are you just doing it because, well, I'm supposed to? You know, I'm expected to be there. I'm a member, I'm not a member, whatever it may be. Like, I'm just doing it because. You know, do you read your Bible? If you do, why? Do you do it because, well, I'm supposed to have a quiet time to be a good Christian. And so I'll throw a little something at it. Or do you do it because you hunger for the word of God? Because you want to know what God has to say to us. You know, do you pray? Do you help people? Whatever you do, why are you doing it? And I really feel like this is a good heart check for us to see why am I doing what I do do I do these things because I love God and because I want to point people to God and not point people to me or do I do things because I'm supposed to do it to look like a good Christian because that's kind of what God expects and if I do good then you know maybe he won't get mad at me and make my tire blow out on the way home I mean whatever it may be it seems ridiculous but people think that way but we really need to check ourselves. Why are we doing what we do? Why are we gathering as a church? Why are we praying? Why are we singing? Why are we helping others? Why are we, why are we doing anything? Is it to point people to us or to point people to Christ? And here I think Jesus has given us a great example of how corrupt our hearts can be, but that's the thing God looks at. God looks at the heart. And so whether it's got to do with the works we do or the commands that we obey, it all comes back to the heart of the matter, and man, that's really where we need to we we need to focus. We need to look inward, um, and we need to repent, because God is a God of forgiveness. You know, if we're doing things for the wrong reasons, forgiveness is there. We just have to repent of those things, and we have to recognize them for what they are. And that's kind of what repent means: is we're going to agree with God. Yeah, this is wrong. This is sinful. And I need it gone. That's what we need to do. So let's pray together. And uh, we'll sing one more song. And uh, be finished for the day.